0: Hello and welcome and thank you for joining us in the first of our series of videos on the topic of communication, a subject that is of huge importance to us all at a personal level and at a business level. Let's start by introducing ourselves. My name is Jenny Powell. I'm the director of Miradoris.
1: And my name is Sue Farmer. I'm also director of Miradoris. And we're both very excited to welcome you on this journey where we will be looking at effective communication both from a skills and scientific standpoint as well as some of the more art-based elements to it.
0: So in this session we're going to focus on the core fundamental skills of communication. The question really is how hard can it be? Surely we've all been communicating since we were anything between 12 and 18 months old. So Why is communication such a hot topic, and what is it that we all get wrong, do you think, Sue?
1: Well, I think that's such an interesting question, and and 12 months. Is it 12 months that we start communicating, or should we even go back to when babies are first born? Because that communication that comes from crying is very relevant to parents when they first hear that noise. So that communication is, is almost happening before we're born. But we really need to recognise, Jenny, that when we think about communication, there isn't so much available to us in terms of the, the what and the how. All we have are, are words that we either speak or words that we write. So we've only got those two mediums. And we might find variations on those two mediums, but, but we're quite limited in those two mediums.
0: And of course, thinking about today with social media and everything else, the format of written communication and the impact that a message can have when you don't have the body language that goes with it, you don't have all those support mechanisms, make it even more critical. And the ability, therefore, for people to misinterpret or misunderstand a message when you've got, as you say, it's just written or verbal, but thinking about written without those other characteristics to support it, is pretty key. So what are the, what's how to make sure that the message gets through in a way that you want it to? What are the key steps soon?
1: Well, I think we need to recognise that human beings have some innate desire when it comes to communication. It's not enough to just tell you what it is that I'm communicating. Because if, uh, if I just give you the what, if I just give you the data, just give you perhaps even the facts, but nothing else, no context, then there's every chance that you're going to make it up. You're going to create the context. And that creation of context, the understanding of the why of the communication is going to come directly from your mood. Now, we know that mood is continuously up for grabs. I may wake up in the morning in an amazing mood full of energy and then my train's late and I miss my first meeting and suddenly my mood has shifted so the impact of how I'm going to interpret any communication that's coming from you, no matter how clearly you believe that it's delivered, is going to be very dependent on how I translate that on the inside. So that, that why becomes critical, because otherwise the why is going to change based on my mood. So it's not about just telling me what, Jenny. It's about telling me why it is that you're communicating with me. If I just say, for example, to you, see, see me in my office at five o'clock, You might know that that's because you've been doing an amazing job all week. Or you might think that it's because you were late this morning.
0: So you will start to tell yourself all sorts of stories, which may well be negative. And thinking about that example, it's only 10 o'clock when the manager's come in and said, I want to see you this afternoon. I've got the rest of the day to really impact my productivity, to impact my own communication. Because I've told this story to myself and I'm thinking, why, why, why? And the why isn't good. Absolutely, so. and
1: because of the way the human brain works, that initial why story is, is, might start of, of, you know, well, it's because I was late this morning. And then given a little bit of time, that why becomes, oh, yeah, but I was late last week. And figures have been down lately. And there's been this talk about cost-cutting. And before we know it, what was, whatever the conversation was going to be about this afternoon, I start to talk to someone else about redundancy. Oh, I'm sure that we're going to start on the consultation for redundancy just because I've had a bad morning.
0: So a simple miscommunication that's focused on the what and hasn't given the why has triggered a potentially really significant amount of behaviour and impact and feelings and everything else that could affect a whole... Office.
1: Could affect the performance in the office.
0: So what are the skills that that manager, taking that instance, what what should that manager have done in order to paint the right picture?
1: And what we're talking about really here is aligning the intention behind the communication with the effect, making sure the message lands in exactly the way we want it to. So when we're formulating our communication, we need to make sure that we have the what, that it's clearly defined, we know what we're communicating but also that we're communicating the why so that we don't allow that person to make it up and spend the day suffering. We need to take into account some facts to support the what and the why, because otherwise, again, there's every likelihood I'm gonna make the facts up. And finally, we need to consider how is the recipient likely to feel? Now, we don't have a crystal ball, but we should at least take that into account and start to anticipate some reaction from them. So, for example, let me give you another example. Uh, If I'm working in an environment that has multiple branches, then maybe if I just say to you, Jenny, we're going to need to relocate you, the story about that could be relocation from Edinburgh to John O'Groats, for example, or it could be to a branch a couple of miles down the road. If I don't supply the facts, the reasoning that, that there is a need for that relocation could be because I know that that branch is short-staffed, or it could be because you've always had it in for me and this is just your way of getting back at me. And from a feeling point of view, if you're not anticipating that that might create some insecurity in me, then my feelings and my emotions are likely to run rampant and impact everybody else around me because I'm going to talk about it.
0: So you've raised a couple of things there. One is the intent of a communication and the risk of there being a huge gap between the effect it has on the individual, and the other thing is the facts and the feelings. So a very simple communication has suddenly now got multi-layered elements to it. So I think about an instance where my manager intended to give me recognition for, for having closed a big piece of business, and instead of talking about the facts and understanding that I had a bad month the month before, so this was really important, it was just a kind of off the cuff, well done, you've done a great job Jenny. So the intent was to give me a credit and the, the effect was actually it made me feel pretty rubbish because what was he crediting me about? What was he giving me recognition about? And he didn't understand or take into account my feelings. So the what, the why, the facts and the feelings with, that commu- with any communication uh, are obviously things to take into consideration. How can we help people to bear that in mind and to make sure that, that they are considering all those different facets when they are communicating?
1: And it might be as simple as just making sure when they are preparing for the communication that they do the what, why, facts and feelings. It's a very simple walk around, but if the communication is important enough to communicate in the first place then surely it's worth taking that extra 10 seconds, and that really is all we're talking about, an extra 10 seconds to go through that process. Now, the other interesting factor to take into account is how much can change at the impact of that communication if we haven't led into it properly. So if we go back to the fact that your boss wants to give you a bit of recognition for a great month's results following maybe a, a difficult period... By the time you've come into his office, anticipating the message that he was going to deliver to you, you're going to show up in a certain way. Now, us human beings fundamentally don't only communicate using words. In fact, words came into a form of communication very late on uh, in the human history. And when we show up demonstrating body language which says... I'm either defensive, I'm aggressive, Mm -hmm. I'm subservient, just because of the message that's been running through me, the recipient's head, during the day. Preparing for this final communication, the body language communication between the two of us may very well change the content of the communication that was going to be delivered. So there you are, expecting bad news from your boss, And if I'm your boss and you're showing up in in that very defensive, aggressive type mode, ready to look after yourself, instead of congratulating you on a great month, I might well now be considering what's going on. And all thought of the positive communication I prepared for now disappears. And, And my innate response to that body language is to find out what's going on, but also to become potentially slightly defensive and aggressive myself. So the message you now walk away with echoes all of those fears that you built up during that day, which was not the intent of the communication at all. So I cannot emphasise how important that step of, of what, why, facts and feelings is. Otherwise, we're in the gambling game. We're gambling with intent and effect.
0: And that also links to listening, because I'm going into the office possibly not hearing what the manager is trying so to communicate you know, absolutely. so again when we you've talked about we've talked about the skill of, of giving information there's listening and there's questioning which are really the only skills that that we've got from a communication point of view in addition to informing so how do we open our minds to actually hear what's being said rather than hear what we want to hear or what we know already we are going to hear so how do we help ourselves to listen more effectively
1: and that's a really key skill and again it's one of those conversations that we could say well we all do it don't we you know it's something that we learn at such a a, lot, a young age why are we even bothering to discuss it but how many people really hear the message from a brain perspective there's a couple of hurdles that we have to overcome. Now, along comes that body language, and and we know that that accounts for 55% of all communication. So all sorts of subconscious communication is going on between the two of us before we even get to the point of opening our mouth. But then, tonality. Tonality is Mm -hmm. 38% of that communication. So the tone in which we're communicating with each other and the body language that we're using is far more important than the words that we're ever going to use. So tonality and authenticity, being real and meaning what you say, is absolutely critical. Now, let's go back to that conversation where you're expecting to hear bad news, I'm wanting to deliver positive news. Your body language is is a bit strange, it's not quite as I'm expecting. We start the communication, I inform you, and at this point I'm I'm informing you in a very balanced way, so I'm giving you the the what that I didn't have time to give you this morning when I asked you to come to my office, Mm -hmm. I'm giving you the why, I'm giving you the facts and feelings, and my tone is very aligned to my open body language, but I'm being met with resistance, with a bit of almost defensiveness, now that's confusing me. Your body language is confusing me. It's confusing my message. But I'm also confused by your reactions to what I'm saying. And the reason I'm confused is because you were expecting to hear something different. And so you've got some wonderful filters running on your ears. And because you had this expectation, which of course at this point is not serving you well, you had an expectation to hear some negative news All you're listening for is negativity. Mm -hmm. So you've filtered out anything I'm going to say that's positive. You just don't hear it. And I begin to sense you're not listening and I'm wasting my time. And that wasting my time can either build into a story now in my head about the value that you really can add to this business and whether this good month you've just had was just a fluke (laughs) and, and am I just wasting my time communicating to you? Or I can come in with another communication skill at this point. And that's the skill of questioning. I can start to understand what's happening here. And questioning is another one of those skills. Of we, we can all ask questions,
0: can't we? Well, exactly. We've all been asking questions as children, interestingly. The question that children ask the most up to a certain age is the famous why question. Yes. Which is a very good question to uncover. You were talking about communicating the what and the why. And why is a question that will help to get to root causes and really understand what's going on in somebody's head. Somewhere, we stop asking those open, I want to know, I don't mind owning up to not knowing the answer to everything. And we start to seem to close down our questioning so that we're actually just trying to drive to get the answer that we thought we were gonna get coming into it. So what is this about open and closed questions? Everybody talks about open and closed questions. Why is it so difficult and that's to really keep questions open? Why yeah. is it so
1: difficult? And that, that, that's such an interesting topic because if you talk to people about what kind of questions are there. Now I remember going on countless sales training mm-hmm. sessions where I think the most I ever got to was 16 different types of questions. And please don't ask me to tell you what they were all called. But they're, I remember walking out of a sales training course in my mid-twenties thinking, I can't remember the first two, never mind the remaining 14. And I've no idea if I ever used them. And we really need to go back to basics with communication. It's not that difficult as long as we are open-minded about it. And let's let's really look at the types of questions we have. And there are only two. You know, we can... Derive all sorts of versions out of those two questions, but all we have are open questions. And open questions are those questions where we're really looking to understand more information, to really probe until we get to the bottom of whatever it is we're looking to establish, and closed questions. And closed questions are just that to close the conversation off or to check in, to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. And when we're using those checking questions, it buys us a bit of time. So what really happens when we're questioning people? Well, the minute we start on a topic, and I think we should give an example in a second, but the minute we start on a topic, particularly if it's a topic that we're familiar with, we start to get an image in our head of what good looks like. Now we know that everybody's brain is unique, a bit like fingertips. There are no two brains in the world that are identical. So if one extrapolates that out, one must understand that there are no two images of whatever it is that we're talking about that are going to be identical. It's just not possible. It's not humanly possible for us to visualise identical goods. Mm -hmm. In every instance, there's some slight difference. But as soon as I've got that visual output in my head of what the answer is to the question I'm openly asking you at this point in time, Then my next question may well be forming before you've completed your answer, so that I'm demonstrating I'm on top of the situation and in control, but also I'm driving to demonstrate that the image I had in my head was right before we started. And it has a fascinating impact on this open question, because it drives in assumptions. So I might have one open question for you, but from that point onwards, I'm driving towards the image in my head
0: which is also stopping you from listening as well as from asking more questions. So some of it I know is about genuine and sincere interest in the other person. So if you really are interested in what they have to say and what their issues or their challenges are or whatever, you are more likely, with intent, to ask open questions. And therefore, the closed question should really be to help your understanding. Absolutely. Once you've really understood, to tell me more about that. And I guess the other thing is, an open question doesn't always have to be a question. Tell me more about that. That sounds interesting. All sorts of things to stop us making assumptions will actually work and have the other person really open up and explain so that I guess when we go back to where you started at the beginning about informing, communicating, then you really have got the facts and the feelings because of having asked great open questions that have got the answers. We all think we're good at this and I've worked with people where they all say they're great at open questions and we do an activity and actually they ask 25 closed questions in a row. Mm -hmm. How can we help people to stop their normal pattern of questioning and actually step back and say, I need an open question now or be more aware, how do we increase that self-awareness?
1: And actually it is just about being more self-aware. It is just checking ourselves that we've left our assumptions at the door. That the minute a topic that we think we know something about, small or, or large, in terms of experience or knowledge, as soon as we sense that we're creating an image, creating an answer in our head, we need to check ourselves. Because that's just the trap down to assumptions. And people will so readily fall into that assumption trap, where you ask an open question, and because I think I know what what the answer is, I I no longer listen to you, or I start making Mm -hmm. assumptions. Or worse still, I start judging. And when we have that act of judging, which can come through questioning without necessarily the intent to judge being there, but because we're driven to support the image in our mind, then then judgment comes in. And when we're talking about what makes people do certain things, so for example, if someone turns up late to the office, I might ask the open question of, why were you late?, And depending on your performance for the last month, depending on how reliable you've been, depending on how I trust you, depending on the openness of our relationship will depend on what I hear as your response. Because in my head, I might well be running some value judgments Mm -hmm. and some unconscious bias about what I think about people who are late. If it's not a problem to me, then I might be genuinely interested in why you're late. Because there may be a very solid reason for the the fact that you're light. However, if punctuality is a key driver for me, then the chances are that when I ask that question, we all understand the term loaded question, I'm asking it almost hoping that you're going to fall into a trap. And if you don't fall into that trap, I'll continue to lay the slippery slope for you to slide down so that you end up in a situation that is not helpful to either of us, I haven't really answered the question as, why you're late? And you don't even know why I'm asking the question. And it could just be that I have a value set running that says, all late people are bad. You can't trust them. They're unreliable. That may not be backed up by any proof, though, Jenny. And we need to be aware of that. And it is that awareness.
0: So applying judgment in, in that instance is really going to stop you listening. It's going to yes. stop you asking the right non-judgmental questions and therefore if we're aware of our biases and aware of that, we should be able to step back and use these critical skills Mm -hmm. even more effectively. Absolutely and
1: there's some very simple exercises that we can do to, to help us understand just how good are we at open questions. So we can either catch ourselves and monitor ourselves or we can come up with a topic So one that we like to use fairly regularly are pictures. You you talk about a picture of anything. You talk about a picture of a car, of an ice cream, of a holiday, of a house, of of, of any topic, one that is is familiar to all people that you're likely to encounter on a day-to-day basis. They're going to have an image. So as you know, I like to drink my coffee without milk, and, and you like a cappuccino. So if we mentioned the word coffee, the image that comes in your head It's completely different from the image that comes in my head. And it's not that I'm right and and Mm -hmm. you're wrong. It's that we're coming at it from a different perspective. So if I'm wanting to ask you what kind of coffee you're looking for, I'm going to have to ask very open questions about something that seems so obvious. Now, if we're capable of making assumptions about something so everyday like a cup of coffee, then what other impact is it likely to have? And if I deliver you a coffee based on my image, and it's going to have no milk in it, I'm afraid, Jenny, then you're not going to be very happy. But that's not too key from a business perspective or a relationship-building perspective. However, if we're now talking about a back-office system, or we're talking about acquiring a new client, or we're talking about some developmental skills, or we're talking about relationships between the top of the business and the bottom of the business, that can have a profound impact on people on their performance and how the business operates and in fact even the longevity of the business. When we look at businesses that have folded and just derailed, so many of them started with an issue with communication. So something that is fundamentally there from the minute that we're born, actually, I believe, is the most critical element of business. Successful businesses communicate openly. They ask open questions, they check in with closed questions, They listen, and they really listen, and they check their listening. And it's not about being right, which is what those leading, close questions deliver continuously. It's about hearing. I no longer need to be right, I need to listen and understand. And then it's about clarity of informing. Because how often does informing not happen in a way that is consistent? And we have a change in company policy or a new product launch or a shift in the marketing perspective or a change in personnel and the information relating to that goes in one form to one one team member in a completely different form to another team member. And how many office communications run on a sheep dip basis? You're here and therefore you will be communicated with and I'm going to communicate with you all in the same way. How often do we check the clarity? When we're communicating it tends to be one way. And yet surely communication has to be two-way. Do we use jargon and then check in that people understand that jargon? Because if I don't and I'm in a situation where I'm feeling slightly insecure or maybe intimidated, am I going to be brave enough to check that, they are, that I understand the three-letter acronym that you've just used or a word that I haven't heard utilised before? Is it concise? Are we delivering... 50 bits of information at once and I can only grab the first one or two and then the rest become a blur and the more I panic about it, the more elusive those messages seem to be. So are we just being direct and concise and making sure that they're easy to understand? Are they relevant to me? There is nothing worse than having 30, 40 people squashed into a room going for a sheet dip communication. And because it's not relevant to 50% of the room, they're a bit disruptive. They're a bit bored. They shuffle about a bit. They create distractions that get, get in the way of clear listening. Is the information accurate? How often do we get half stories or elements of inaccuracy? Bits that we know not to be true. And therefore, can we trust the rest of the communication? Because we started from an inaccurate perspective. And then is it completed? Or is it drip-fed in installments, and in between those installments, because the what, why, facts, and feelings are not clear, I make it up. Because I'm not going to allow black holes. I need completion in my head. So, how we inform, how we question, how we listen, if we can't do it without um, predecide, deciding, predetermining, having some prejudice, some unconscious bias dominating the way we communicate, then we're hampering ourselves before we even start. And the chances of success for business are diminished greatly from something that we learned when we were, before we could even talk.
0: And all those tools apply in only two scenarios, verbally and in writing. And in writing, everything you've just described is even more, even more critical. So we have two vehicles to use these skills, so we really need to use them properly and effectively. And
1: the great thing is it's easy to practice because we do it all day, Mm -hmm. every day, in one form or another. We're continually communicating with ourselves, with the internal chatterbox, or we're continually communicating on the outside. So I think we really should just practice questioning listening and informing, becoming self-aware, making sure that whether we're writing or whether we're speaking, we always cover the what, why, facts and feelings to make sure that the intention of the communication is always delivered with the effect.
0: So to summarize, we have a situation where I've come into the office, I'm late. I've been called in by my manager who says, come and see me at five o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know why she wants to see me. I'm hoping that I'll get some recognition because I've had a great month's sales on the back of a couple of not great month's sales, if we're going to be honest about it. My manager all through the day is not busy doing other things. I'm thinking... Is she going to give me recognition? Is she going to give me praise? Or is she going to tell me off for being late? How important is it for my manager, when she sees me, to consider what the facts are she really wants to communicate, my feelings, what stories are running in my head, and therefore whether the intent of that conversation is really going to have the impact and the effect that she wants it to, because essentially she wants me to sell even more the following month, How easy is it for her feelings to get in the way and think she's late, she's often late. Late is very important to me. For some people, lateness is key. Questioning and listening and questioning at a very deep level are going to be key. Considering my feelings, considering the facts. In questioning and listening and informing, thinking about all those things and keeping them in front of mind will help us all do a better job. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you at our next session. So in our next session, we will be looking at how our thinking and our thinking preferences impact our ability and effectiveness to use those core and critical questioning and listening skills, and also impact whether our preferred method of communication, be it writing or verbal, is necessarily the preferred way in which the people we are communicating with are actually most likely to hear the message. Please join us again for our next video session.